Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vertical Space, a podcast at the intersection of technology and flight. We are your hosts, Jim Barry and Luka Tomjanovic, and here we look at the most important forces shaping the market of advanced air mobility, with a particular focus on why and how they matter to those building a business in this very exciting and growing industry. We have some AI-based type instructor currently in the Air Force, but it needs a lot of work, right? It's still a little clunky. Where I would imagine is you have something that has neural pathways where it's discussing this like a human would. And when you try it, it's talking to you like a human would when you don't do it right. I envision when you have an instructor and you're spending that really sacred time sitting across the table or in the cockpit with them, that you're doing things that only humans do the best. And that's going to be the nuances of flying. The things that you can read a thousand times in your books, you're not going to get that, hey, you see that cloud right over there? When you see that color right there, or the, see how it's flattening out? That's an anvil. They, hey, that's cumulonimbus, dude. You need to stay away. That's, that is going to be bad in five minutes. Or, hey, see the your airspeed increasing on final? This is what it feels like to have a gust, right? The, you, know, you can talk about that in an academic environment, but there's going to be nuances that only comes with airmanship when one human's transmitting an idea or a concept to another human. So I envision the human spends best on the human time and the machine, and I would say self-paced learning is spent where that makes the most sense. Welcome back to The Vertical Space. Today's topic is the exciting world of pilot training innovation an area that has become a high priority to militaries and airlines around the world, given the pilot shortage that the industry is grappling with. Helping us examine this topic is Ryan Riley, a retired U.S. Air Force F-16 fighter pilot who most recently led Pilot Training Next, an initiative that leveraged advanced training technologies and learning methods to cut the U.S. Air Force pilot training in half. Ryan also currently happens to be going through training with a major U.S. airline, which we also discuss in our conversation. The U.S. Air Force is short approximately 2,000 pilots, which is about a third more than its annual theoretical capacity to produce pilots. At the same time, major airlines are accelerating their pilot hiring and are signaling concern about insufficient pilot supply. This has sparked a wave of flight training innovation to solve two major pain points, training time and training throughput. Ryan walked us through the current Air Force pilot training pipeline, what prompted urgency to revisit the decade-old training formula, what innovations the Air Force experimented with, and what the outcomes were. We talked about the pros and cons of mixed reality and synthetic training, and the importance of student-centric and distributed learning in both military and civil training environments. Naturally, we also discussed the controversial topic of the 1,500-hour rule, the related hours versus competences dilemma, single pilot operations, and then extrapolated the discussion to autonomous systems and how novel concepts in flight training might help the industry think through building trust in autonomous wingmen or virtual co-pilots. And to stay true to our roots, Ryan highlights what remaining pain points exist for innovators to go and solve. Ryan recently retired from the U.S. Air Force where he flew F-16s, both operationally as a fighter pilot with multiple combat deployments, as well as a Thunderbird pilot. In addition to flying, Ryan's career included a number of leadership roles, including Deputy Division Chief, 19th Air Force, Chief of Offense at the 613 Air Operations Center, Contingency and Crisis Action Planner, Pacific Air Force's Lead Technology Integrator, and most recently, Detachment 24th Commander leading Pilot Training Next. Enjoy the conversation with Ryan. 
This episode of the Vertical Space Podcast is brought to you by UAvionics. UAvionics is the leader in low-size, weight and power certified avionics for manned, unmanned and advanced air mobility aircraft. Let UAvionics help you achieve your goals, whether that be type certification, airspace access or beyond visual line of sight operations. UAvionics has certified and certifiable communications, navigation and surveillance avionics for your aircraft. So head over to uavionics.com or Google it to see how you can start flying safer and move your platform forward into shared airspace. All right, Ryan, welcome to the Vertical Space and thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Luca and Jim. Really appreciate you um, having me on and excited for the conversation for today. You've been in aviation professionally for what, over 20 years? And you and I have known each other since the academy days. And so after accumulating so much experience, is there anything that very few in the industry agree with you on? I think the key point for what we're talking about for today is for flying is a complex skill set. And, you know, there's no secret sauce to that. I think it's just how do we, how do we most appropriately use our time available with students with whatever, whether they're trying to learn flying for the first time all the way to, you know, a major airline. And I think most of our methodology has been based off of the interwar period uh, leading up into World War II and then kind of solidified during the jet age. So we really haven't changed, I would say, the formula in a long time. So and I think that's just from my perspective, being on both sides of the table, both as a student, as a a line instructor, uh, evaluator, and now doing this again in the civilian world. What are the pain points in pilot training today, whether this is, and let's focus on the military for now. Yeah. So the pain points, there's a couple of them, but I would say number one is sessions, you know, getting the right amount of people into what we call the pipeline. And, and so when we talk about the pilot training pipeline, what we're really referring to is from the time that they are assessed and start pilot training all the way to the time they hit their operational unit, their first operational unit. And so the pain points is number one, it's time. And number two, it's throughput. And so right now the, you know, the U S air force is, is on the hook for really about 1500 pilots a year. Um, and that's at surge capacity. I mean, and that's, that everything has to go right. Whether it has to be really good, major maintenance issues with the fleet have to be really tight. Uh, and then we have to have the right amount of instructors. And that's really hard for the air force to hit. And this also applies directly into what we're seeing in the civilian side, especially with the 121 carriers pulling so much from the regionals, the military, and 135 operations. We're seeing just there's not, there is a pilot shortage, and that is, is nationwide. Before they even become pilots in the Air Force, I understand that the military selection process for pilots is very good, and there's a very high completion rate. What's the process they use? And what could the civilian world maybe use qualified pilots? Yeah, so the, I'll speak from the Air Force perspective, and I, th I think it's it's a good system. I think we could probably improve upon it, and I can discuss a little bit of there. But what we really use is um, the pilot candidate selection method. It's called the PIXM score, and the PIXM score is a one out, you know zero out of a hundred. Hundred being you're super qualified, and all it really says is just your probability of finishing or completing pilot training. Not actually how well you'll do in it. You know, it won't say that, you know, if you're a hundred, you're going to be the number one graduate. It just says that statistically over decades of collecting this, if you have a PIXM, let's say of 85, 90, you have a very high chance of finishing. If you have a PIXM of 30 or below, 
you have a very low chance, comparatively speaking, to your peers to finish. I kind of describe it as a source of like a meat cleaver, right? It's like, it's just taking a, a big kind of hack. Hey, you'll either do okay, or eh, you might struggle a little bit. Some of our allies and partners across the pond, specifically the Royal Air Force, have a very stringent application process and their air forces are a lot smaller. So they can be a lot more discerning on who they choose than the Air Force. Just the U.S. Air Force alone has a huge amount of throughput, comparatively speaking. We're talking maybe a couple hundred total versus, you know, several thousand. So for them, it's like a five-step process and they really can whittle down pretty specifically on if they're targeting for fighter pilots or for helo pilots or whatnot. And they've got that pretty well uh, figured out. For the Air Force, we really let that kind of play out through the actual performance while you're in pilot training. So once you start, you go into the pipeline and then now it's really about it's sink or swim. How well can you do in relation to your peers as well as kind of the absolute metric of hey, you have the qualifications or the, I would say the propensity for doing well in fighter bombers or heavies or helos. What's tested with Pixim? So with it's kind of, a, it's heavily weighted towards if you have flying experience, any kind of previous flying experience. So Luca, you know, we were talking about the, the glider stuff before and, you know, that's, that's aviation experience, right? So that's going to weigh in heavily on the Pixum score versus if you showed up and you've never flown anything. We do have a process, it's IFT, so introductory flight training. We do send, everyone has to have a certain amount to start into pilot training. But let's say if a kid has, shows up, you know, a 200 hour and an instrument rating, that's going to heavily weigh into their PIXM score. AFOQT or other um, baseline stuff is going to fill into that as well. And that kind of goes overall to the whole PIXM. So there's a there's a weighted formula. I don't have that specifically, but basically it takes in several factors, but weighted heavily for aviation. Ryan, describe the pipeline for somebody starting training. What are the different components? How long does it take until somebody is mission qualified for a particular major weapon system? Okay. Yeah. I'll, that's a great question, Luca. I'm going to, I'll talk about it without any pauses because right now the pipeline is backed up a little bit in certain areas. So I'll talk about a perfect world scenario, like where you start in day one and day X you finish. So I'm going to assume that you're finished with IFT or some private pilot's license when you show up and you're going to go to one of our, our pilot training bases. From there, you'll be assessed into a class and then you're going to start academics. So that's what we call phase one is going to be your academics. Phase two is going to be your flying of the primary trainer for the U.S. Air Force. It's the Mighty T6A. And when you complete that, it's about six months total. So your phase one and phase two combined is about a six-month footprint. Then you're going to go into phase three. The phase three currently is going to be if you're going towards helos, you'll go direct to helos. If you're going fighter bombers, you'll, you'll start with the T-38. And then if you're going for um, heavies, you'll fly the T-1A, but actually that is in the process of being retired out of the uh, fleet. So that will be actually synthetic simulator only course going forward. And that's another six months. So I'll talk about the fighters specifically first, because that's the longest uh, training timeline. So let's say you've done everything phase one through three, you've graduated and you're ready to go to IFF, Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. That's That's been about a year thus far. When that's no breaks, that's no changes. I mean, that's just 12 actual calendar months of training. Then you're going to do another, I think it's about 15 week course or so. So add a couple months to that to do IFF. And then when you finish with IFF, then you'll head over to one of our FTU, our uh, formal training units. So I'll say, you know, from the F-16 perspective, you'll either go to Holloman or if you're going to F-35s, you go to Luke. 
And then that B core, well, or we also refer to it as the B course, that F2 will be six to about six to eight months. So for just the purposes of calculations, another six months. So you're looking at already about a year and a half, maybe almost a little more than that, just for the flying portions of this with academics built into it. That's not counting the moves that you have to do. That's not counting water survival, uh, land survival, all these other things that kind of have to add up. So we're really kind of talking about a two-year footprint right now, and that's without any backups. Ryan, how many hours of flying experience do you have once you're flying for the Air Force? Jim, I would say it depends. Uh, right now, we're in a, in a state of flux with the Air Force changing its its training uh, pipeline, specifically our heavies uh, and the divestment of the T1. But I'll say that I'll, I'll talk fighters first. Fighters, it's about a uh, 180 ish hours to get through IFF. So that'll be T6 and T38 total time combined. So about 80 and about 80 to 90 hours in the T6 and about another 80 to 90 hours in the T38. And then you go to the FTU and that's about another 70. That just depends on each platform, but let's just say that's another 80 to hundred hours. So you show up with probably 250, maybe just shy of 300 hours total time. And that's including all the basic trainer all the way to whatever cockpit you've been flying in. And then with fighters, traditionally, we really wanted to try to get our students around 182, or sorry, not students, our brand new wingmen, about 180 to 200 hours a year. And unfortunately, that's not happening now. You'd be an anomaly if that was happening. We're talking much less, 130 or less. And so it just takes time, right? And so the seasoning that we're talking about, especially with the complex mission sets, that we're expected to do in the fighter force specifically, that's just not a lot of hours to do this, right? And so our simulators have gotten a lot better, specifically the linked simulators with uh, the combat air forces use. They're really, really good for our missionized rides, but we still have to season our, our pods somehow. So what you're describing is the legacy process, right? Yes. So now with, with some of the innovation that also you spearheaded that we'll talk about here in a moment, there was a desire to improve this process. So tell us about Pilot Training Next, the goals, the results, why it matters. And specifically, I'm, I'm curious to know whether these changes are as a result of people realizing that there are quality issues, or is it because of pressures of the pilot shortage and the pilot supply? You know, one could argue if it has been working for so many years, decades, you know, why change? That's a, a multifaceted question. And I'll try my best to, uh, to answer it. So please get, uh, course, correct me as needed for this. So the pilot train next experiment was born out of a necessity, right? I would say that if we didn't have a pilot shortage in the air force, I, I don't think we would have kicked this off. So pilot train next was, was thought of in about around 2017 when general Quast was still, um, at air university and he had got kind of this nucleus of thinkers to together. And basically that's where the, the idea came from. Started getting some traction in 2018 and they actually started training up in uh, Bersham Field at Austin. And General Quaston had originally pushed it out to be by itself, specifically away from Air Force installations to kind of break that standard, hey, this is always how we do it. And I think that was really critical. I mean, I think I think you can find people on both sides of that argument. I'm on the side of you want to break glass, you want to try something from a clean slate design, you've got to take some risk. So I was a fan of Pilot Train Next before I joined and actually ended up running it for a few years. And so when I showed up 
at uh, Randolph Air Force Base, uh, General Quast had hired me to basically start with this squadron next idea, which was another transformation idea of how would we design future employment squadrons and how would we kind of do that multi-domain airmen concept, you know, which has now transitioned to ACE. And so basically that created pilot training next had a move at some point in 2019, it moved from Bergstrom and then came to Randolph Air Force Base basically to start figuring out, okay, what's working Bergstrom away from a U.S. Air Force entity? Will it work now as we start to, to onboard some of that in the Air Force? Pilot training next is really, it's a proper noun. And why, why I say that's important is because a lot of people, depending on what they read or saw or experienced with pilot training next across the last five years, that's kind of their idea of what pilot training next is. So for the time that I was uh, running it, it was T6s, T6Bs specifically that were modified by Textron. And we were doing everything from basic to very advanced fighter maneuvers in it. If you looked at it last year, we were heavily focused on specifically figuring out how to create a usable training platform that didn't use the actual T1 aircraft, right? And so that synthetic training became air mobility fundamentals simulated simulator course, right? And now we've transitioned yet again to start focusing on how are we going to integrate the T7 as it comes on board with a T38, specifically fighter bomber fundamentals. So kind of break the paradigm of that phase one, two, three pilot training thought process to like, hey, from day one to day X, when we finish, that's just fighter bomber fundamentals. And so these differences in mindsets, and with that comes a lot of questions and and a lot of skepticism. And there needs to be that skepticism because I think without it, innovation left unchecked can create something that's just not scalable, right? So pilot training next is really, if you think about it, it's the test platform and unit to start figuring out how to do things differently without putting the burden on a, a squadron that actually has to train pilots. You know, they're on the hook for 250 pilots a year or whatever it is, right? So this is sort of a unique entity that has has endured through General Quast and then basically mo- the move to 19th Air Force with uh, General Wills and then now General Stewart. You know, there's been several, several general officers who have had direct input and protection of the entity pilot training next or detachment 24, which I think is really important. Ryan, what's most different with pilot training next and how are the outcomes different from this last five years of implementation? Yeah. So I'll I'll talk about, and of course, remember, take everything that I say as a grain of salt. You know, a lot of this stuff was under when I was running it. So I'm going to try to be as objective as I can, but at the same time, I do want to highlight that there were some pretty big wins that came out of pilot training next. So the original idea was, and I think General Cross was pretty serious about, hey, I want to shorten pilot training by half. We can produce, you know, double the output now, or with that extra time, you could either train to a higher level of proficiency or you could train faster, right? And so the original idea was with that, we did three classes specifically with pushing them from start to finish in about six to eight months. Each class was a little different and we can talk about specifics there, but basically six to eight month footprint versus that 15 to 18 month footprint. And then they went off to their formal training units. We learned a ton from that. We also got access to an advanced cockpit with the baseline T6B that we borrowed from the Navy. We borrowed a fair amount of those and then we modified them so that we could have a cockpit that would give us valid training at the more upper end of the spectrum. Well, what came out of that was a lot. 
number one, we learned that when you integrate and start using, I would say, heavy use of virtual reality as well as just synthetic or, you know, your simulators, there's a lot of stuff that you can take out of the flying syllabus. So in the traditional sense, and like you probably remember this, it's a demo do. First time you fly in any new, I would say, block of training, you're going to spend one ride that's kind of burned. And what I mean by that, it's going to be like, all right, we're going to do this as the instructor. I am going to show you, and then I'm going to let you try it. And I'm probably going to take the aircraft a couple of times. It's going to be a learning process that we're spending JPA, you know, jet fuel on doing. A lot of that initial socialization does not need to be in a cockpit. You know, I'm happy to have, if anybody doesn't agree, I would love to have that conversation because we saw the results directly. And so I'll just take the the solo, right? A solo is is the first solo in a turbine aircraft is a big deal. Typically it happens in 10 to 15 hours of flight time. And with using that heavy use of synthetic training to get the reps in early and then spend that fuel better, we were soloing them in four to six hours. And that was repeatedly. That wasn't just one student, one class. What's really cool about that is that specific aspect we are now seeing in UPT 2.5, which actually now is just normal T6 training. So if a student starts now in pilot training in the Air Force, they're under the new updated syllabus. And really it's the bones of what was scalable that came from pilot training next and a couple other pilot programs across the command. And they were kind of combined into what is now T6 training. So we're not producing pilots and zero to finish in eight months, but it's very different than what I went through. Uh, and I think it's for the better. Lots to unpack here. Maybe first, the three classes that you've taken from zero to getting their wings in six to eight months, once they reach the FTUs, was there any noticeable gap in performance? Yeah. So we graduated between, it depends on those first three classes. It was 20, 15 to 23 was the total number. Um, but we had a lot of partner services and nations. So we had some Royal Air Force. We had uh, U.S. Marine Corps as well as Navy. So, you know, there wasn't all just Air Force uh, students. But so I'll just kind of boil it down to the Air Force students. What we saw overall over the three years was kind of a normal bell curve distribution. What I mean by that is the ones who were in the bottom of the pilot training next classes tended to struggle in their FTU a little bit. The ones that were, were in the top tended to do pretty well. And so when we looked at that, we definitely saw some differences. And I would say most noteworthy on the early classes was going to be in the fighter world. So the T6, by the way, is an awesome training platform. And, you know, as a fighter guy, when I started flying the turboprop, I was like, geez, this thing's slow. But despite that, the thing is just, it's got gas for days. It's super reliable. It actually can pull, you know, pull seven Gs if you wanted to. Brake turns that we were hitting 5.9, six Gs on the brake turn. I mean, it was, you could do a lot and very cheap to operate. But with that, what we saw was the lack of speed differential. So when you jump into a F-16, you know, you're slow cruising at 300 knots. And, you know, when you're doing tactical maneuvering, you're 400 to 450 knots, which is effectively two and a half times faster than what a T-6 cruises at. So what we saw with some of our students is there was the first couple of rides in the F-16 uh, we call transition rides. And those are just no employment, just learn how to fly the F-16 land, do the emergency patterns, single or you know, the engine out procedures, all that kind of stuff. We definitely saw that they had to play catch up with that. So, you know, some people can say, Well, see here, what do you expect when you don't have jet time on the backside? Well, my argument, or I would say my answer to that is remember in a pilot program, an experimental program, the whole point wasn't just to produce pilots. You can do that. No, you don't need a special unit to start thinking about 
new ways of doing this. This is like how we teach people. How do we do learner centric training? How do we, how do we actually take adult learning methodologies that the educational community has been publishing for years and plug that in? And what we found out is none of that has ever been done from pilot training syllabi. Just hasn't. We just did it in an instructor-centric method. And so what we did is say, I'm the expert. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. I'm already going to tell you what you're going to mess up. And this is how it's going to be. Versus sitting down and actually, and I think the civilian world does this a lot better and say, hey, tell me how you're feeling about this ride. Tell me what you think your strengths are and tell me what your weaknesses are. Remember, I have the, I have the grade sheet. I know objectively what the last instructor said, but I want to get inside the student's head to maximize that training. So it's not just about the flying, it's about how we learn. And I think sometimes that gets lost. And that's probably, I would say, one of the biggest takeaways from pilot training next. So those students went directly from the T6 to an F-16? Yes. Yeah, that reminds me of my path, actually. I went from a PC-9, which effectively is a, a lighter version of the T6, and went straight to, to the MiG-21 without anything in between. And how'd it go? What, what were your observations on that? You know, everybody was saying how this was going to be very difficult, but in practice, it wasn't the uh, the mechanics of it. I didn't find challenging. What I did wish that there was a bit more time just to build airmanship. You know, this is what going to ask you about this trade-off between time and quality, because yes, you can leverage a lot of the synthetic technology today to manipulate systems better or gain knowledge on procedures and the you know, quote, easy stuff. But arguably, you need to be up in the air to build that airmanship. So what have you observed is a good trade-off in that space? Yeah, so we, we definitely learn trial and error uh, with this over the over those years. And, and we did subsequent top-off classes. So we did the baseline three classes, but then we took the initial students from UPT 2.5, which was our first major transition with the, the T6 pipeline. And then did top off training with the T6s um, for a few more classes. And then we pivoted into the synthetic space with the T1. And so what we found out with that is there's definitely, there's a role in a use of technology, but there's also a role in use of really and spending time with our instructor development. So, you know, in pilot training next, this we were doing untested, you know, we were trying new stuff. And so we had to spend a lot of time internally in the unit to develop the instructors so that they were, I mean, number one, we got top line instructors. All of all of my pilot training next instructors were just absolutely like awesome. As the commander of the unit, you know, I felt like I was probably like the least competent uh, instructor at times in the T6 because they were that good. They were just, so I was very lucky with that. But what I noticed is when we did specific development of the initial cadre, the level of performance that they could bring to the table for our students was just that much higher. So I would say, you know, if if I if you could only do one thing, if you're going to modernize a training platform, this goes to a Part 91 small school that has a couple Cessnas all the way to professional training. If you can only do one thing, develop your instructors, do professional development, make them better communicators, make them think through the eyes of their student. If you can do that, your efficiencies will be already significantly higher than if you didn't. The technology is super easy and, and a lot of large organizations tend to just jump to that initially because it's easy. You could just spend money. And I and I know that's like that's kind of crazy to say, but really, you know, spending money is the easy part. It's integrating. So with that, what we saw in the synthetic world, specifically virtual reality, is 
virtual reality is really good for showing site pictures. It's also really good for if you want to kind of think through something and you want to try it like a, you know, you're going to go do a loop, right? And so, you know, despite what people may think of like a loop, a loop is just a couple of gates that you have to hit, right? There's, there's your entry parameters that you need to be at, altitude, airspeed, uh, wings level, you're going to go vertical. You're going to look over each side of your wingtips to make sure that you don't have some kind of bank so that you're still symmetric. Over the top, you're going to check your over-the-top airspeed as well as altitude before pulling through. And then you're going to do the same thing on the backside, targeting that entry altitude, right? Those are gates. Well, you can think through that in chair flying. And chair flying is absolutely necessary and still needed in, in this new way of teaching. But there's also the time where you just want to practice the reps. Oh, this is how I nose low I need to be before I get to this airspeed. Okay, now I'm going to squeeze the G on. Are you feeling the G's? No, but that's not the point. And I think a lot of people need to understand that if it's just, if it's something that I can do repetitionally, then, then the VR can be very good. Now for instruments, virtual reality is probably not the best use uh, for you want to go shoot a couple of RNAVs and ILSs. You probably can do that in our legacy simulators or a desktop, you know, uh, version versus being virtual reality. So use P3D or Microsoft Flight Sim, whatever it is, and just fly it off of the computer screen, right? I mean, so it's taking that technology and matching it to the correct level of learning. And when you can do that, things happen really quickly. And it's really exciting to see how fast they can grab complex information. Tell us a little bit about UPT 2.5. Were the methods explored at Pilot Training Next now adopted in the T6 portion of UPT? And is that called 2.5 or are there some other changes? Yes, Luca. So it was, it's called UPT 2.5. But now all T6 training is has adopted the new syllabus, so it's just now UPT. So we, uh, General Wills originally had called it UPT 2.5 because he said it was the UPT 1.0 was was way back when it was just everyone flew the T38. Ryan, what is okay. UPT? UPT, thank you. <laughs> I'm so used to the acronyms, right? Uh, uh, alphabet soup. Yeah, undergraduate pilot training, UPT. So undergraduate pilot training in the 50s and 60s, all the way actually until I think it was 1990, early 90s, 91-ish, was everyone flew the T37, everyone th- flew the T38. And then we bought the T1, uh, Jayhawk, and then it became specialized undergraduate pilot training. And so it was SUPT. And that was, I would say, UPT 2.0 or two, you know, version 2, right? We're wanting to get to that version 3, and then we're not there yet. So what General Wills did at the time when he decided to start scaling aspects of uh, the pilot training next experiment was, hey, let's just call it UPT 2.5 because it's, it's not 3. We're not there. We just started this. And he realized that this was a long-term path that the Air Force was going to set itself on. This was not something that you can modernize in one to two years. This is a decade-long process. So um, UBT 2.5 was the transition time frame until all the T6s finished up training under what the what we call the legacy syllabus. And now everyone, if you start pilot training in any of our UPT bases, you're starting under the new syllabus. So the commander of AATC said, hey, let's just air education training command. Let's just call this UPT. And so we've made the transition to that. Now, that being said, the road, the path hasn't stopped. Like this is going to take some time. But what came out of Pilot Training Next experiment specifically that was taken was instructor development. It was a key critical component to success of modernization. Use of synthetic training, specifically virtually re- uh, virtual reality, 
There were several hundred um, uh, virtual reality devices purchased and spread throughout the command and basically removing the barrier of learning. And what I mean by that is, you know, most bases only have a handful of T6 and T38 and T1 simulators and they're booked pretty solid. So now these virtual reality trainers are in the units or right next to the units. And so if a student wants to do their flying on their own, or if it's part of a syllabus item, there's 20, 30 of them available for them. So that was to remove the low density, high demand asset and kind of flip it around. And then the other thing that came out of that was specifically was student-centered learning, and that's not student-led. And what I mean by that student-centered learning means it's, it's about the student and how they learn how we can more effectively communicate concepts and then get the students light bulb, you know, to turn on quicker. And then really then there was a biometrics aspect that came there. We're, we're still working on that. There's a ton of research that shows biometric markers and how they connect to how you're learning level of cognition, stresses, all that kind of stuff. That's a whole separate topic and, a, and definitely an Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole we could go down. But safe to say, as we dabbled a little bit in pilot training next, there's a ton more to be done with that. But I say it's all about maximizing training. And so the last thing was we realized that the T6A was purchased in the 90s. And then was, you know, I would say it's, it's over 20 years of great performance. It's time to start modernizing the cockpit a little bit. And so I think that's going to be a while. There's some contractual stuff that's going on. But I would expect hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll start seeing some initial prototypes to have a more modern cockpit in the T6, which will allow more, more I think, relevant modern training. Have any of these innovations in uh, UPT propagated to downstream squadron training? And more broadly, are we adequately training our pilots for a contested air domain? Yeah, the, the, what I was just talking about is at all the units. So, you know, you've got... Uh, the new syllabus, we have now a schoolhouse that's here at Randolph. That's Sorry, done that. Ryan, I meant not past UPT, so informal training units and trainings and actual oh, operational UPT. squadrons. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's the million dollar question. Are we adequately training to a contested environment that we don't really under, know what that's going to be like? You know, it's kind of, it's sort of like if I take back to the early days of the prior to night one of desert storm, right? I mean, our crew, air crews uh, were taught, were told, hey, 50% losses, it's going to be bad. It turned out not to be that way, right? Uh, history has shown that we were well prepared for that fight. You know, the contested environment, we have to assume is worst case, right? And so from that lens, I would say that we're never there, right? I don't think we could ever rest on our laurels, right? I think we have to continually push what the expectation is for a contested environment. You know, GPS was a, a significant enabler, uh, it continues to be so, but we're gonna have to train air crews to, to fight without GPS, right? I, I flew the green screen Viper all the way to the advanced, the newest versions. In the green screen world, I was, you, you did radar updates. You did, you know, you decouple your GPS to your INS or your, you know, your initial or your initial navigation system. And you did that because the jet wasn't, that advanced. We're going to have to kind of brush off some of those skills in a test environment. And also I think mission command. And what I mean by that is delegated responsibilities to update the game plan as, as our warfighters see it on the battlefield, because they're not going to be connected 24 seven to an air operations center. I just don't see that happening. They're going to have limited connectivity and they're going to have pockets of connectivity, but it's not going to be uncontested across the spectrum, which we've enjoyed through the global war on terror for the last 25 years. So long answer of saying, 
No, but I'm not saying no throwing a spear at our, our training apparatus. I'm saying that our training apparatus has to continually lean forward and start projecting on what competencies are most important for the next fight. And right now, that's the contested environment we're talking about. So as you transition from the military, you transition from the Air Force with the great training that you've received. What are some of the lessons you think you can bring from the Air Force to the civilian, to the commercial pilot training world? Well, Jim, I would say it's kind of cool being a student again, number one. Uh, I'm enjoying that process as I go through, I would say, arguably the world's best training uh, for the civilian 121 carriers, right? And so they are doing self-based training better than the Air Force is. And what I mean by that is in UPT, uh, before we had started the modernization program, you weren't given unlocked access to all your content and you had to go on day one to academics and sit through death by PowerPoint, right? For eight hours a day. We started this, you know, four years ago in pilot training to start breaking away from that, get it to where you're on an iPad, on your computer at home, have a lot more access to content that is walked through a learning management system and then tracked and modified depending on your performance within that system. We're definitely taking that steps in the Air Force to get there, but we're not, I think, as advanced as what I'm seeing in the civilian sector. We're given a company iPad Pro that has literally anything you want on it. Uh, It's got all your academics. It has your videos for you to watch and helpful how-to, how to start the engine, how to do pushback, how to do this. Like It has a part task trainer for the, the computer, the FMC, it, you can go and, and use that on your iPad or you can log in your personal computer to do that. I mean, it's like literally, we kind of joked in our class, it's sort of like, if you can think of a way to do it, you probably have three different ways to do it, right? And I like that a lot. I don't like having that prescribed sitting in butts and seats for eight hours with somebody literally reading off PowerPoint. I mean, I got a little bit of the ADD, man. That drives me nuts. I can't do that, right? Like, I just, <laughs> I check out, man. I just mentally check out. And, and disclaimer, I don't have ADD, but you get what I'm saying. Like, most pilots who are, like, like to multitask, sitting in a room with, you know, no windows for eight hours a day is just not a lot of fun. I, I think they're doing that really well. Where I look at both the military and the civilian sector and kind of, I would say, if I'm going to put the vision casting out a little bit, Oh, man, I think there's so much more we can do. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the checklists, checklist disciplines, left seat versus right seat, you know, first officer, captain flows to the military, same thing, right seat, left seat, or single seat, all that kind of stuff. There's so many things that we can offload from our instructors so that when we have those quality hours with uh, an actual real live instructor pilot, we're not doing death by PowerPoint. We're not, we're not, we're, we're focusing on again, more of that adult learning theory. We're going to focus on situational based training. We're going to do labs. Like I would much rather just spend like a lab, like, Hey, you did all this pre-reading on the mission, you know, the FMC, the computer today, we're going to do what ifs. All right. Hey, you're at this location. You're going to have to load up this much fuel. I want you to do this. Hey, you got questions? Ask. Like that's where that's where the true learning happens, you know. And so, from my perspective, I think also the use of VR or 360 video, depending on what level of learning we're talking about, can be utilized quite a bit. And so I I see those just starting to come out. And there's a lot of companies that already have these as commercial offerings. They're willing to make this type of content. A lot of it you're seeing already in commercial. You know, if you're on Instagram or TikTok or uh, YouTube, the YouTube shorts, I mean, people are already doing this just for not 
but they're not doing it in an instructional manner. They're doing it for entertainment. But all those types of things that they're using can be used effectively when you're trying to, again, showcase complex uh, competencies. Excellent. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Now you've had the training in the military and you're uh, conducting the training today in the commercial side. And as you think about the 1500 hour requirement and you see the the debate between the 1500 hours and potentially a performance-based criteria for evaluation, what are your thoughts on that topic? And how can you help us deal with this issue of the pilot shortage going forward when you consider this debate? Yeah, Jim, that's, like you said, that's a very, uh, I wouldn't say sensitive, but it's definitely a topic of discussion, right? And when we look at the pilot shortage overall, you know, the market says that we need, you know, we hired, what, 13,000 pilots last year into the legacy carries. And that's a one year. That's, it It far eclipses the next best year of like, I think, 6,000, five or 6,000. Like, we're talking significant numbers here. And so we have to figure out our throughput issue uh, and of course, you know, before the Cologne crash, there wasn't a 1500 hour rule. And there's a lot of reasons that that was input. The way I look at this is, okay, why did we set ours as an, an as a unit of measurement for a pilot? Well, because back in the early days, 1920s and 30s, if you made 100 hours, number one, you probably taught yourself to fly or had very little training overall. Like you made 100 hours, like you learned, you, you figure something out because you, you're still alive. You're not dead hours meant something, you know, and it was the only unit of measurement that was kind of across all the different platforms. But I I don't know if that's the best measurement, specifically when you talk about competency-based approach. Now, airmanship has, you have to have seasoning, like you have to be able to fly a plane and be exposed to adverse weather, things that are different, uh, non-factors that weren't planned for, icing, all those kinds of things. You have to get that. So the hours is one way of looking at it and the competencies is the other. But the problem is with, if you just go to competency-based approach, then where do you define the number, right? Is there a, is there a number? How would, you, how would you even make that uh, with all the different part 141, part 91, part 60, whatever, how would you baseline that? Very, very difficult to do that, right? And so hours can be a baseline, but I would argue 1,500 hours flying, doing tow banners or, or you know, 1500 hours in, you know, a CRJ, you know, jet or 1500 hours of doing CFI time, which is, you know, teaching in Cessnas. Those are all very different uses of 1,500 hours. Right. And so I I don't have the, you know, I don't have the, the answer here, but I would say kind of looking from, from both spectrums here, I, I think that Compasses do matter. You know, for me as a single seat fire pilot right now, I'm in fire hose method. Like learning all the 121 isms, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff that I don't have that these 24 year olds next to me do. The ones who started with the regional airlines and have regional experience. But I think I have a different baseline to bring to the table, just like they do. So, how, what do I care about compasses? I think personally that safety, a safety mindset has to be your number one consideration. Like you as a pilot, if you're not like, Hey, my job is to be as safe and as predictable as possible. I don't care if you're an air show pilot. You know, I flew on the Thunderbirds. Like everyone thinks, Oh, it's air show. It's super low. It's scary. It's dangerous. It was very scripted. We did everything by the book. And if there was any question of safety, we knocked it off. I value that more than anything. Like I, you know, students that want to push the envelope you know, they want to like break rules. Dude, there is no place for you as a professional pilot. 
There's just not. When you were in the Air Force, how did you determine competency? I mean, at 350 hours, you're flying missions after your training. I mean, how did you determine competency? Or did the Air Force just say it's 350 hours and because of the quality of the training we have and the urgency of, of the need for pilots, that's good enough? Yeah. And, you know, so from the fighter track, remember when you're, when you get checked as mission ready, uh, as a wingman, you know, when you're that mission ready wingman, you're like, dude, I can take on the world. And for me, it was in Korea and I was ready to go North. Right. If, if, the, if we had to, right. That was the whole point of being there. What I realized now as an old guy, looking back, I was like, you're just barely proficient enough to like do what you're told. No, survive as a wingman. Yeah survive yes there you go luca like you're just like oh my gosh like like a 15 year old 16 year old driver like you know you you barely know enough you're just enough to be scary it's so for the air force what i think the air force and all of our western nations do better than anywhere else is we do the brief execution debriefment methodology and we are extraordinarily detail oriented so yeah, you only have 350 hours by the time you're ready, you're mission ready or more somewhere on there. But that 350 hours is probably, I, I, I couldn't even calculate how many thousands of hours are behind that 350 flying hours, right? There is no translation in the civilian world to that. I've done CFI, double I've taught in Cessna 50s. I've taught, you know, I'm seeing it right now. Your brief is 20, 30 minutes. You go fly for uh, whatever that time period is. And then your debrief is maybe 15 to 20 minutes long. Fighters, it's an hour and a half de- uh, brief. It's an hour to an hour and a half flight. And it's a three hour debrief, depending on the complexity. Maybe an hour and a half if it's if it's a, not an upgrade ride, right? And then there's the hundreds of hours that you're spending in the vault learning your tactics, learning your adversary's tactics, reading the new bulletins on the changes that our intel is seeing, like it just never stops. If you're not a lifelong learner, you, I, you just can't be there. All right, I'm going to try to summarize what I think I'm hearing, Ryan, and please edit it if I'm off. What you're saying is you learned through very sophisticated training, a really good way to fly when you, when you were in the Air Force. And you've also understood the importance of actually flying to reinforce what you learned in the in the classroom, what you learned in the simulator. You've come over now to the commercial world of flying for a, a big carrier, learning to fly and doing training with a big carrier. And you're really impressed with the training that you're receiving. And what you're also yes. saying is when we talk about the 1500 hours, I'm not hearing that you're saying, no, you should just make it performance-based because it may be difficult to determine a metric for this person is ready using performance-based criteria. But what you are saying is, well, 1,500 hours is still 1,500 hours. And you do get a lot of experience for 1,500 hours. So if you were king for a day, would you leave the 1,500 hours in place today? Or would you try to make something more performance-based and look at other ways of determining whether somebody's ready to fly or not? Oh, Jim, you put me on the hot spot. I I would say both. And and I'll, I'll explain why i think that for the catch-all the 1500 hours is when you like when we talked about when you don't have that baseline across the spectrum of training that was a you know the faa made that determination to to basically say okay we need to buy some risk back we need to lower the risk so the 1500 hours you know some people say it's arbitrary or whatever right when i think from 750 to so double basically here's what i think though i think that if if it is a national imperative and i think it is a national imperative that we have to produce 
tens of thousands of pilots to keep our apparatus going over the next you know couple decades like that's a significant number of pilots we've got to have a, a pipeline that can adjust to that so when you take embry riddle university of urbana champagne i'm actually on the board with angelo state university starting up their aviation program you've got aviation training that's at accredited u.s colleges that are offering you know that with you know to get your bachelor's this, those are perfect. Those are perfect locations to have a very a standardized FAA syllabus. And if you're certified and you follow this and the FAA makes sure that you keep your yearly certs, that's the equivalent of what the Air Force does, right? We do that with standardization and evaluation, and we, we standardize our training across the pipeline. If we want to potentially remove that 15-hour restriction, then it has to be very specific and very thoroughly thought through. And I think our universities with very adept and robust flying syllabi are perfect to be standardized. Now, I use that as only one. I'm sure there's other ways to do this. But from my just from what I've seen and from the quality of training I've seen from the folks that are coming out of these uh, schools, that's a great way to do it. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, where my mind keeps coming back is one of your earlier comments about debriefing. It really resonates with me. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm coming from the military flying world, obviously, before, and the debriefs are excruciatingly long and painful, but at the end of the day, extremely valuable. And so the fact that this does not exist in commercial flying, what's the takeaway here? Is that something that should be <laughs> instituted? How would, you know, how would your fellow airline pilots react to an idea like that well you know i mean you know an hour and a half debrief for a for a civilian flight you know especially when you're everyone's qualified and checked out that's pretty long right what i would say is for the training you know the simulator training is is amazing in the 121 world i mean the, the sims are top of the line right those are high quality as close to real as you can get with the motion platforms and all that stuff they do do uh, briefs, execution, debrief. I really like the way that they're doing that. I think it's different than the, the military's viewpoint, but for someone like me that never flew a large aircraft in a crew environment, it's great. I, I have to learn that. And those platforms do very well to teach you not only the aircraft and how it handles emergencies or what we call non-normals to now execution at, in a crew environment. But, um, but Ryan, those are also prescribed curricula, yes. right? Those are scenarios yes. that you go through that part of a syllabus. But what about things that come up in the in the course of a flight? Are there appropriate or good enough ways and avenues for pilots to you know flag certain events and then discuss them, debrief them, take lessons, integrate into training? Yeah. So the, all the major carriers that, that I know of, you know, they have a threat matrix. They also have a CRM matrix, but they also require a brief and a kind of a, a roll up for the crews, whether it's like, say, if you're the same crew and you're flying four flights, right? So before that first flight, everyone gets together, pilots, flight attendants, um, the crew gets together. They're going to go over the threats for the day, the issues known, you know, is there maintenance problems with the plane? Are they on schedule, et cetera, weather? all that fun stuff. And then they're also going to sink back at the end and say, okay, hey, what went well? What could go better? Right? There's a lot of ways to uh, tackle that. So I think from the application of flying in a commercial environment, that works. 
also, I'm very new for that. So it's hard for me to, to, to critically give you my thoughts on this because I'm still new to it, but I'm happy that I see that there's a safety focus, a safety culture, and a way for crew members to bring up issues that are known, whether that's in a formal brief or an informal on the flight deck or something that happens in the back and is brought to the uh, cockpit attention. Yeah. You know, what's interesting as well is when we're talking about hours and whether this is the right unit of measurement versus perhaps competencies or something else makes me wonder whether how we deal with this question will help us introduce autonomous systems in aviation or how will we deal with autonomous systems? Will that help us deal with addressing this question for for pilot training or the fact that we don't know the answer to it? Will that slow down adoption of autonomy? Because oversimplifying, you, you can try to teach autonomous systems certain competencies, quote, or you can take the approach that, hey, you just need to uh, expose them to as many edge cases, you know, aka experience, arguably, hours. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think the the autonomy is absolutely, I mean, it's a, it's a constant thing that we're going to watch happen and as more stuff gets integrated into um into aviation i think where that's being pushed the most is the electric vertical lift and takeoff or the ev tolls really awesome to see because they're clean slate thinking through air vehicles and use of transport right so the fact that they're electric i think people get kind of hung up on but i mean what i'm looking at with all these is they're all designed to be autonomous now they're going to have pilots in the near term and they'll but depending on what platform you're looking at like you can't put them out of control right there's already a significant level of autonomy running in the background and then you're more just an air operator versus i say traditional pilot right and some of them are built explicitly to be that way so that you wouldn't need a pilot's license you would need some other kind of certificate right the faa would have to weigh in on that but what i like about watching how that's developing is the use of autonomy and the thought process of what is okay. I mean, it's the same thing with Tesla and autopilot, right? You know, autopilot's a misnomer. It's, it is just an advanced version of, but the whole point is that the car can drive itself for the most part. You still have to be attentive and plugged in, but that brings up the, the dual edged sword portion of this. So from my perspective, we as humans are much better when we're involved in the process like we're involved in the monitoring we're like plugged in somehow when you're just monitoring systems especially for long times that's not much changing it's hard to stay focused specifically on the systems to make sure that you're monitoring them right and so we already see this in, in the civilian world you know the our planes are extraordinarily capable i mean they'll land themselves and in fact they there's requirements for you to let them land themselves if the weather's below a certain minimum so they they can already do pretty much everything with you just kind of making sure that the automatic functions are working properly now does that mean we need to go to single person cockpits and all that kind of stuff that's been thrown around in the news well from the military perspective if that reduces risk operationally for our, our preservation of forces okay then maybe we'll take the operational risk of running a, a large weapon system with only one person that was designed to be operated in a crew environment in the civilian world safety is the number one driving factor and it and it is directly tied to the legacy carriers you know their their image right i mean safety has to be paramount it's it's it totally cannot change so with that 
if you're talking about removing pilots from the cockpit or you're going from two or three, you know, augmented crews down to just one, the problem is humans are the, are, are, we're the limiting factor in a lot of ways, right? But we're also the ones that have created this thing called a brain between our shoulders and we allow to solve problems that are unique. And that's where airmanship comes from, right? I mean, something that never came up. I mean, Luke, I don't know if you had it in the MIG, but in the F-16, I had a couple failures that weren't, Engineers say we're not possible until they failed with me. Like, and it took a lot of time to figure out actually the root cause after the incident. But I mean, that's what we're paid for. That's what you actually have pilots up there for. It's not when everything goes right, right? It's not for like when the it's beautiful, severe, clear weather, everything works normal. The pilots are there for when things don't go right or things happen that the autonomous systems aren't designed for. That's really what you have for safety. So that's a tough one. Yeah, it is. It is. You bring up a lot of interesting points. Um, you know, makes me wonder what really should be the reasons for introducing autonomy, right? People throw safety or certainly cost benefits, yeah. but it is a very interesting trade-off and not really as intuitive as perhaps one would think. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, if you want to talk about systems and the lack of, uh, I would say what can happen when systems aren't fully understood is just look at the max issue when when the 737 max came out and when we had two accidents you had boeing testifying saying that their plane was was safe and this plane was safe right but there was missing elements of what they had changed in the air aerodynamic designs of that plane right that didn't make it all the way down to the training environment and i mean that's a perfect example of when autonomy is not well understood can happen right and that's not throwing spears at the pilots uh, on those flights it's not throwing spears at at the oem manufacturer it's just a perfect example when a complex environment when when there's a breakdown in information flow on the new uses of autonomy things bad things can happen obviously i've had a lot of exposure with applications of autonomous systems in the military domain so if we just switch back to the military for a little bit as it relates to autonomy how is the military thinking about implementation of autonomous systems how do you as a as a former fighter pilot think about the right mix the right level of collaboration between humans and machines yeah so I, you know in that space i'm i'm very bullish i want us to push the autonomy levels because it gives us more options in the battle space when there's a very high risk mission set right now that takes significant mission planning and you know has to be a, a risk you know, matrix. And we have to talk about that when we have some level of autonomous or standoff weapons that can do the same thing. It, it gives our commanders more options for putting effects on target. Right. So from my perspective, we need to do that. Right. And so the pilot in me goes, Oh, geez, you can put yourself out of a job, but at the same time, why do we have fighter pilots? Right. And so taking the fighter pilot perspective, like I love flying the F-16. It's the, my favorite plane I've ever flown, right? It's just so much fun. But it wasn't built for my enjoyment. It wasn't built for the, the guys and gals who get to fly it today, right? It was built for an instrument of war. And it was made to fly that way because it was designed to reduce the pilot load of actually flying the thing so you could spend more time killing things, right? I mean, so let's just boil it brass tacks. They are instruments of war. And so why wouldn't I want more options for putting effects on target and i think what we're going to see with that is you know the ucavs there's multiple names for it. You know, the unmanned v 
vehicle systems, you know, it's not, we're talking the predator or the reaper. We're not talking the or surveillance planes. We're talking specifically welded wingman, that kind of stuff. And I think what we'll see is augmented flights or augmented force projection. And that's where it's going to get really exciting because where I've seen the, uh, what we call the fine fix finish problem set. So when we go F2, T2, EA, it's a big acronym that we're using the air operations center, or we boil it down to the fine fix finish. Right from the time that we don't know something's there to the time that we have actionable, targetable knowledge so we can shoot it or blow it up or whatever we got to do it. That process is only going to shorten with the use of AI. And AI can be plugged on the edge. It can be built into these vehicle systems that can then transmit autonomously to your aircraft and out, and you don't have to do anything for it, and we're better for it. Absolutely. I totally want that. You know, do I want to have the option where I can go, hey, today, night one, acceptable level of risk is extreme. Okay, let's choose the non-manned option for today, please. Now, people say, well, hey, you're taking the warfighter out of the fight. Well, we always need to be, and I have strong opinions on, I think that when you talk about taking life in a military application, you still need a human that is given the, the consent to fire. Now, it doesn't mean for every single weapon or such, but when we talk about from the time that nobody's shooting at each other to the time some people are shooting at each other, I think that the human aspect of what that means has to be made by a human. The machines can give you all the recommendations and targetable and you know, here's your percentage of target, targeting and all that fun stuff. But I think the decision, the human aspect of war still needs to be to where Hey, this doesn't feel right. The intuition, the warfighter, you know, perspective. There's many times where I flew in combat where the AOC, you know, the air operations center was saying, do this. And it just didn't make sense at the battlefield. It's why we have humans still plugged into this. So while I say, yes, we need the autonomous systems and all that stuff. I think we still need to be very judicious with our application of, of air power and who's making the decision when. Well said. What are some of the opportunities for innovators when it comes to training? Where are opportunities for startups? Oh man. So this is, thanks for asking. Cause I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of startups. I've worked with uh, a plenty of them over the last four years. And let me tell you, they are hungry. They are ready to try. They're coming up with solutions that you didn't even like, didn't even think about. You're like, really, you can do that. You know, that's the whole point of the startups. And, you know, I applaud you guys for plugging into that finding out the right folks to invest in and pushing that forward because they're absolutely critical. Um, I think that the DOD or the Department of Defense specifically has to figure out a little bit better ways to bridge the valley of death um, with funding. And what I mean by that is you have a technological valley of death, right? You know, from startups that have a great idea to the time they're generating income to be self-sufficient, right? So there's also that same input for when we invest in them through small business innovation, innovative research, or, you know, SIBRs, we call them, we have to be able to have a mechanism within the Air Force and Army, whoever, to where, you know, you invest in 100 startups, and you've got them plugged directly with warfighters, you're going to get, let's just call it a 10% would be amazing. Let's just call 5%. Like you get a couple out of that hundred investment. You better have a chance. You better have a figured out how to invest and keep the funding going so that you can actually put something to field. That's where we're struggling the most, I would say. And I would say there's a couple units that have the the chops as far as funding to do that. But when you're talking out of like a fighter squadron or a C-17 squadron that has very limited resources, they love working with startups and SIBRs because the SIBRs usually comes from, you know, somewhere within the Air Force, not out of their budget. 
But then when it starts showing some real promising gains, that unit's on their own to start fighting the staff battle to put it in the palm, what we call the you know programmer records and all that stuff. And it takes two years, two right. years minimum. Right. It's painful. Yeah. Super painful. So, you know, while I was wearing the uniform, I was very critical on our processes as far as we have to have a stopgap slush fund of some sort that can bridge a cyber. So we up, do the two year requirement, you know, fill out the paperwork and say, okay, in two years, I need this much money to actually make it a program record. But between that development and that two years, when the funds come there, you've got to have some way to keep the innovation going, keep that development going. If you double click on specific themes for innovation or areas, technologies, remaining gaps, where would you point innovators? So I would say in the training space, specifically aviation training space, offloading the requirements for like we have our academics. So focusing on more streamlined and easy to build academics that are immersive and also student-centered uh, focused. So you have that in that space. You have AI. AI is, I think, the long one. I love AI, the application of it. it it's very difficult because right now we have, I would say, algorithms that you have to train. True AI, I would say it trains itself. But for us, data collection and the military side, we need to collect as much data as we can about what right looks like and what bad performance is and have clean data lakes so that when AI eventually is ready for the aviation world, we can have autonomous tutors. I think it's a ways away, but we uh, we have to continually strive to make progress in that realm. In the flying world, I would say there's a ton of stuff, right? Where it gets really expensive is when you modify planes, right? The planes themselves are very expensive to modify and that's a separate discussion, but I think there's so much we can do with app-based training that we can be collecting. We can be collecting GPS trails. We can be collecting, you know, heart rates, all kinds of stuff. And that is easy to bring into the cockpit. So we can focus on the human performance aspect, right? And collecting good data to tell where our cognitive levels are while we're training, both on the ground, in the air, as well as actually building applications that can help when we're pushing towards those most more complex uh, mission sets uh, in a contested environment. So I think there's tons of spaces to play for our innovators and our start, our startups. Ryan, bullet round if we could. Say five, 10 years from now, let's say we've made significant progress in the area addressing pilot shortages. So I think 10 years is, I mean, I would love to see this happen within the 10 years, but you know, I envision, and I'm taking a, lo- a little bit from General Wills when he would talk about this publicly. I don't think this needs to be the military only. This could be civilian or military, but in the military pilot training, you get selected for pilot training, you're shipped an iPad and a VR headset, and it has everything loaded up. It's hung on a learning management system that's going to walk you through. The learning management system is going to be adaptive to how you're learning. So if you already know the basics, it's going to quickly walk you through the basics and you're going to get to stuff you don't know. And it's going to rep it through. So by day one, when you show up, you're finished with academics. At least the you're ready to hit the flight line. I think that you'll have a lot of AI-based instructors For example, that loop uh, that I talked about earlier, when you're being taught that loop, we have some AI-based type instructor currently in the Air Force, but 
it needs a lot of work, right? It's still a little clunky where I would imagine is you have something that has, you know, neural pathways where it's discussing this like a human would. And when you try it, it's talking to you like a human would when you don't do it right. I envision when you have an instructor and you're spending that really sacred time sitting across the table or in the cockpit with them, that you're doing things that only humans do the best. And that's going to be the nuances of flying, things that aren't going to be that you can read a thousand times in your books. You're not going to get that, hey, you see that cloud right over there? When you see that color right there, or the, see how it's flattening out? That's an anvil. They, hey, that's a, you know, it's a cumulonimbus, dude. You need to stay away. That's, that is going to be bad in five minutes. Or, hey, see the, your airspeed increasing on final? This is what it feels like to have a gust. You know, you can talk about that in an academic environment, but there's going to be nuances that only comes with airmanship when one human's transmitting an idea or a concept to another human. So I envision the human spends best on the human time and the machine, and I would say self-paced learning is spent where that makes the most sense. What's the one point that you would want the audience to take away from this conversation? It's sort of like we've come, we're awakened to what I think is possible in the learning environment in aviation application. And I think there's a lot of folks that have been talking about this a long time in the academic world, but to figure out how we can best create efficiency in our learning is going to benefit a student to lower their costs on learning how to fly for the first time. You know, I've heard someone says it's like $20,000 now to get your pilot's license. We've got to figure out ways to, to reduce that. And I think in the aviation sphere, everybody says, oh, electric you know, planes will reduce costs or this will reduce costs. I'm like, or just more efficient training, right? So from my perspective, I think we started on this path in the Air Force. It's great for me to see this in the 121 environment, but I think that there's just so much more that we can do there so that when we are truly maximizing our learning potential, that we can help offset the pilot training shortage because like you guys talked about earlier we can go faster but we if we go faster we have to make sure the competencies are similar or we have to be able to teach at a higher level right depending on whether it's a military application or a civilian application what we can't do is buy risk on lower trained lower quality pilots that's like so i I think the big takeaway from this whole discussion is for those hearing my comments i want to make sure that I am a staunch proponent of we've got to hold the line, right? We have, we know what right looks like. We know what those competencies are right. And we have to hold ourselves accountable. So anything that we change in the pilot training world, it must not sacrifice the quality. And if it does, then guess what? We haven't, we haven't achieved what we, we need to. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Really appreciate your time and, and for sharing your insights here. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate Luke and Jim and um, big fan of the podcast and uh, honored to be here with you guys. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the Vertical Space Podcast. Reach out if there are topics that you would like us to discuss and goodbye until the next episode. Unless mentioned, this podcast is in no way endorsing or promoting any person and or company mentioned and all opinions within the podcast are solely that of the presenters. The vertical space makes no guarantees, warranty, or representation of any information given in this podcast. Any information given is for informational purposes and should be used at your own risk. This podcast is for general, educational, and entertainment purposes only.